The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, I feel that this award was not made to me as a man, but to my work, the life's work in the agony and sweat of the human spirit, not for glory, but but to make out of the material of the human spirit something which was not there before, so that this award is only mine in trust. It will not be hard to... Mm. That's American novelist William Faulkner giving his speech accepting the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1949. We revere the Nobel Prize for some reason. It's a curious part of the literary landscape. We accept that it's kind of like a hall of fame, for writers, and yet it never goes to tireless advocates for literature, like critics or publishers, or someone who's inspired many people to read, like a Stephen King or a J.K. Rowling. It has become a Lifetime Achievement Award, a Hall of Fame for writers, and yet it's not awarded posthumously. You could make a Hall of Fame out of writers who did not win the Nobel Prize that would probably be more impressive than the Hall of Fame for the ones who did. On the other hand, as an American, it fills me with pride when Toni Morrison wins, and I nod with approval when I see that Saul Bellow and William Faulkner and Ernest Hemingway and John Steinbeck won. I'm glad that William Butler Yeats got the honor, and Gabriel Garcia Marquez, and Alice Munro, and so many others. There's something grand about it, something wonderful about the way it puts literature in a category along with the peace winners and the chemists and the physicists and other scientists. I'm glad it exists. And yet, it's also often <laughs> wrong-headed and foolish and, in retrospect, very curious. Mike Palindrome's going to be here in a moment. We're going to power rank the Nobel Prizes for Literature by decade. We'll see how well the Nobel judges did, as measured by history. Are there any early decades filled with writers we still read today? Or recent decades filled with writers we don't? You can find the entire list in our show notes if you want to play along. What decade would you take when did they get it right? Are the Nobel judges getting better as time goes on? Are they getting worse? It's a fun topic for literature nerds. If that's you, then enjoy, my friends. I wanted to play the whole Faulkner speech for you, but I worried that the sound quality might make it a little difficult to listen to. So I just played enough to give you a taste of the great man accepting his prize. But I do want to read it all. It's pretty short. It... It gives you a sense of the consequences here, the stakes, the importance of literature. This was in 1949 when the world was entering a new reality where superpowers possessed nuclear weapons and we all faced dangers of survival in a way that no one could have predicted just 10 years before. We still face that kind of existential threat. We still rely on our finer qualities like compassion and humanity to live with this reality. Sometimes those fade from view or disappear. Literature helps them to survive, helps us to survive. Here's the speech. Ladies and gentlemen, I feel that this award was not made to me as a man, but to my work, a life's work in the agony and sweat of the human spirit, not for glory and least of all for profit, but to create out of the materials of the human spirit something which did not exist before. So this award is only mine in trust. It will not be, not be difficult to find a dedication for the money part of it, commensurate with the purpose and significance of its origin. But I would like to do the same with the acclaim, too, by using this moment as a pinnacle from which I might be listened to by the young men and women already dedicated to the same anguish and travail, among whom is already that one who will someday stand here where I am standing. Our tragedy today is a general and universal physical fear, so long sustained by now that we can even bear it. 
There are no longer problems of the Spirit. There is only the question, when will I be blown up? Because of this, the young man or woman writing today has forgotten the problems of the human heart in conflict with itself, which alone can make good writing. Because only that is worth writing about, worth the agony and the sweat. He must learn them again. He must teach himself that the basest of all things is to be afraid. And, teaching himself that, forget it forever, leaving no room in his workshop for anything but the old verities and truths of the heart, the old universal truths, lacking which any story is ephemeral and doomed. Love and honor and pity and pride and compassion and sacrifice. Until he does so, he labors under a curse. He writes not of love, but of lust, of defeats in which nobody loses anything of value, of victories without hope, and worst of all, without pity or compassion. His griefs grieve on no universal bones, leaving no scars. He writes not of the heart, but of the glands. Until he relearns the, these things, he will write as though he stood among and watched the end of man. I decline to accept the end of man. It is easy enough to say that man is immortal simply because he will endure, that when the last ding-dong of doom has clanged and faded from the last worthless rock hanging tideless in the last red and dying evening, that even then there will be one more sound that of his puny, inexhaustible voice, still talking. I refuse to accept this. I believe that man will not merely endure, he will prevail. He is immortal, not because he alone among creatures has an inexhaustible voice, but because he has a soul, a spirit capable of compassion and sacrifice and endurance. The poets, the writer's duty is to write about these things. It is his privilege to help man endure by lifting his heart, by reminding him of the courage and honor and hope and pride and compassion and pity and sacrifice which have been the glory of his past. The poet's voice need not merely be the record of man. It can be one of the props, the pillars, to help him endure and prevail. That was William Faulkner accepting his 1949 Nobel Prize for Literature. I forgot to introduce myself. I'm Jack Wilson, and this is the History of Literature podcast. <laughs> Quick theme song today, just a snippet. We're power, because <laughs> we're going to get right to the show. <laughs> We're power ranking the Nobel Prize for Literature with Mike Palindrome, the president of the Literature Supporters Club. After this. Grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. 
Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me once again is our old friend, Mike Palindrome, who's here for a special draft, Nobel Prize winners by decade. I found this to be a bit surprising, and I can't wait to hear how our choices line up. But before we get there, the last time we talked, Mike, you mentioned a a policy you had of dumbing down your emails that you sent to your friends. (laughs) <laughs> making some grammatical errors you, and so I forth. I forget. I, I thought you would have forgotten that by the time no. we, we did the next one. No, the next I've, I've gotten so many emails and comments about this. It's wow. stayed prominent in my mind the way you, as you put it, you make some grammatical errors and so forth in order to take the pressure off of your friends so they, they don't feel so overwhelmed by your prose and they feel like they could match you so they're more likely to respond more quickly. That's pretty much the way I'd put it. So I went back and took a look at some of the emails that you sent me. (laughs) So here's one subject. This was (laughs) you were sending me a link to an article about the Olympic basketball dream team. You wrote subject line Air Jordan. No caps. And Mm -hmm. your email, the body of the email, also no caps, says worth a trip down memory lane, dot, dot, dot. We were 20 and 21. And then you have a link to the article. <laughs> no capital letters. Here's, here's another one. You wrote, Never read Merleau-Ponty, but may, since I'm on my French kick post-Paris. Reading Marias in French. Next up, Simenone. And then you wrote, But yes, Mon is my guy. And Isherwood... And Moravia. I don't think you can improve upon Mon is my guy. <laughs> I think that that has to have been your first draft. Well, I, I, I never revise my emails, so everything is first draft. <laughs> oh, okay. So, so you just dumb it down in your That's head part of my policy end. that Got it. I feel like when you hone an email, people feel the urge. And maybe that's what I, that's probably a better way to put it than dumb it down is that you know, if people feel like it's polished, then they too have to write a polished email. Mm, right. Whereas I just, I whip out, in fact, what I love doing nowadays is if I start to write an email and my wife or my daughter is looking over my shoulder and they start to say, you can't say that, I click send. <laughs> <laughs> That's the trigger. Yeah, because they, they, if they think that it's slightly inappropriate or forward, if I'm inviting myself over to someone's summer house, like I'll just hit send. Yeah, because I I just I don't believe in second guessing emails. I think life's too short to really work on your emails. Yeah, well, I had a we had a school incident. We've had a few of them, and I had to send a an email to my son's school principal. And so oh. I drafted it, and it was a very nice and elegant email. And they responded back, and they took care of the problem and everything. And so my my wife and I were texting back and forth uh-huh. about whether uh, we should respond with a thank you or if we should wait till my son came home and talk to him about it and then respond with a thank you. And And she said, I could respond. Or we could wait for you to write one of your much nicely worded emails. <laughs> and I thought, much nicely worded emails. I guess she's she's basically abdicating the idea that she would write the email by by using that phrase. Much nicely worded. So let's set up our draft. Hopefully we have some much nicely picked uh, Nobel Prize decades. So I'm kind of fascinated by the Nobel Prize for Literature, which is given, just to give the criterion, it's given to the person who has contributed the greatest work in the field of literature, quote, in an ideal direction, which is incredibly vague as the criterion. And for a while, the Nobel was viewed as as being uh, something they should award to a work for the previous year, for a work like a novel or or a collection of poetry. But then it became kind of a Lifetime Achievement Award for a body of work. And it's 
sort of the Hall of Fame for writers, except that the voting is kind of mysterious. It doesn't always make sense. The judges don't always pick the most famous or even the best writers. And it, but it, because it, I think because it's connected with the other Peace Prizes, you know, there are the Peace Prize and all the other Nobel Prizes, it carries this incredible prestige. And we recently lost uh, Philip Roth, who's a great novelist. And there's something a little bit uh, not quite fulfilled about saying, you know, the headline being Philip Roth, Pulitzer Prize winner. It's just not the same as if it was Nobel laureate uh, or National Book Award winner is another one that, that you see with people. And they're, they're all sort mm-hmm. of pale by comparison. It's, it's a strange thing, the Nobel Prize for Literature, even though I don't know that people take it all that seriously, but then they do get very outraged. And we did a whole show on whether Bob Dylan, a songwriter, should have been awarded the Nobel Prize. And yeah, uh, I don't know. It's just sort of a fascinating aspect I've kept up of my literature. Out, I've kept up my outrage, so I was going <laughs> to talk a little bit more about that. But I, I agree with you. You know, I, I I looked into the Nobel Prize's impact on sales, and mm. I was a little shocked by this. They um, there's a six week stretch when mm. sales just skyrocket. Um, right. The Austrian playwright Elfried uh, Jelinek. Mm-hmm. had sold 4,000 copies of her plays in 10 years. <laughs> Fourth, just, if, if, wow. just, he, just ex- absorbed that number, 4,000 in 10 years. Yeah. And in six weeks after she won it, she sold 100,000 copies. Right. Although I guess plays don't sell a whole lot necessarily. You know, they're more performance-based. But, but also, I mean, certainly it is the case that they're not selecting... J.K. Rowling and Stephen King, you know, they're yeah. It, it's it often is European poets or uh, Chinese authors, or you know that there have been a bunch of selections where people, even people who are in the know, haven't yeah. read a lot or or haven't even heard of the author. Yeah, no, I think it's uh, it's it's become they, they went through a phase where they were picking obscure foreign almost like elitist writers right like you have to be basically a scholar to know them Mm -hmm. and now there's some late breaking news they're not awarding a nobel prize for literature this year did you hear that yeah they're going to give two next year two next year they had sort of a a me too scandal with the judges Oh, I didn't know the reason. I thought it was another, I thought it was a publicity stunt. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're, they're in some kind of disarray with the judges, so they're uh-huh. uh, not planning to award one this year. So that kind of affected how I did my rankings, and we'll maybe talk uh-huh. about this a little bit as we get into the draft here, but there were a couple of partial decades. One was... Uh, this decade, which isn't over yet, but then also in the 1940s, there were, I guess, four or five years where they didn't select one during World War II. So um, you yeah. have to sort of accommodate for that when you select which decade is the best. So I'll let you have first pick. Oh, and one thing I should tell the listeners, we've agreed in advance that we'll follow what the Nobel Prize committee did, which is ni- they first uh-huh. awarded the prize in 19- 1901. They went through 1910. Uh, so that's how we're going to do the decades. So it's the first 10 years. So it'd be 1901 through 1910 would be the aughts. 1911 through 1920 would be the 20s and so on. Okay. So which decade do you think they got it right the most? All right. Well, I, of course, went with, I guess, I want to say, are we calling this the 1920s, 1921 to 1930? Ooh, yeah. We're calling that the 20s, yeah. and you completely blew it. <laughs> you took the fifth best decade as your number one. <laughs> uh, I don't know about that. We, we, we got, we've got William Butler Yeats oh, and Anatole yeah. France and George Bernard Shaw. Yeats is probably the greatest 20th century poet, Mm. um, him or Eliot or Bishop or Lowell. Yeah. 
I have I a think. feeling that all of our listeners know exactly why you took the 20s. And why don't we just, it's the elephant mm-hmm. in the room, Mike. Why don't you just get it out there? Wait, wait, wait. First, let me, let okay. me talk. <laughs> let me talk about Henri Bergson. Yeah. The French philosopher who dueled with Einstein in 1922 and was one of the first philosophers to really talk about subjective time. There, there, his writing is really entertaining. He talks about how before Greenwich Mean Time, the clocks differed from region to region so that there were cases where a train left at a certain time and you arrived at before the time you had left. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so Greenwich Mean Time put an end to that. But he, he and Einstein, you know, Einstein, obviously very scientific, he, he, Bergson argued that scientific time, time measured by units, is actually false time. Mm. And that the real time is subjective time. And it cannot be experienced, subjective time is not, a, cannot be measured because it's all according to each individual person. So, you know, there, there's like pan, pantheism, there's a, a spiritualism in his writing. If you haven't read Bergson, you should you should read him. He was a good friend of William James, Henry James's brother, um, and they used to have wry, witty philosophical debates. It's his his writing is is really worth checking out. Hmm. So. Did he write anything other than philosophy? No, but yeah, that's he, an interesting. Uh, addition for them. They they tend not to take philosophers. It tends to be a lot of novelists, a lot of playwrights, a lot of poets. Well, he was loved by later by structuralists and post-structuralists because he's very playful with his language. Mm. And so he's, he's hugely influential. I mean, not only Sartre, you know, immediate influences, but later, you know, Gilles Deleuze and um, Roland Barthes and... Mm-hmm. I so, think Proust was a fan, wasn't he? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, Julia Kristeva. And he, it, it's, it's, he's a fun read. I mean, he's not your typical philosopher. So, <laughs> but then also in that century, of course, Thomas Mann won the Nobel Prize in 1929. Which, you know, of all the Nobel prizes that all the writers that the Nobel overlooked. You know, Musol and Suevo and Virginia Woolf, Dylan Thomas, F. Scott. They they finally did get it right, giving it to Thomas Mann. <laughs> so, yep, nineteen twenty nine, and then you also get Sinclair Lewis as a little chaser for nineteen thirty in there. Yeah, I mean, it's, you get you it's know, not a bad decade, and you skirt Ned Hampson, a controversial <laughs> pick, so. right? Who you actually you've recommended his books to me, but he obviously uh, that was one of the things that I tried to do as I selected these decades was avoid mm-hmm. Nazis. <laughs> uh, I'm just looking it up here. It turns out that Bergson married. Uh, a cousin of Marcel Proust. Hmm, yeah. Very interesting. Okay, that's a pretty good decade. Actually, I said it, I had it as fifth. It was very close. I did this all through a an algorithm, very scientific, and it actually was not that far away from being third. The I had a, <laughs> a cluster of my, uh, or I'm sorry, uh-huh. Yeah, it could have been third, but it was actually my real cluster is four, five, and six, and seven, and eight, and nine. I guess there's a real cluster. So it was fifth on my list, uh, but I'm glad that you got your guy. Mon is your guy. And uh, one other note about Yeats you know, I read that the average age of the winners were well over 60, and Yeats is one of the uh, few examples where the author was on, his career was on the upswing. Hmm. Right, nineteen twenty three. He yeah, was the Nobel seems to be uh, Nobel Prize committee seems to be pretty conservative in yeah. trying to determine whether somebody has like had a good enough career. Yeah, and you wonder if they're sometimes you wonder if they're waiting for, I don't know. You know, they they wait too long sometimes. The guy who should win yeah. 
is getting up there in years. Gugiwa Tiongo, he's the yeah. number one, um, you know, on the the odds makers, and you know they should uh, they should hurry up and give him one. He deserves it, and he's not getting any younger. It'd be a shame if he wasn't able to get one. Yeah, apparently they they were gonna give it to Swinburne and uh, Paul Valerie before they died. Hmm. Right. So, oh, and then they just missed it. Yeah, because they revealed the 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 short list uh, fifty years later. Hmm. So. Oh, okay. Well, you also in the twenties. I don't want people to think that you got some kind of great steal. You are also stuck with Sigrid Unset and Grazia Deleda and Jacinto Benevente, and you've got some duds in there. They're really good writers. <laughs> <laughs> I, I i have zero interest in trying to figure out what they've written okay well i'm gonna take my first pick i think okay. it's the obvious choice it was the runaway leader uh -huh. in my uh computer algorithm the computer just basically smiled at me and said why are you making me go through these we all know what it's what the winner actually is and that is the 1990s <laughs> and, that was my number two. So, yeah, and I had that number two. And that, let's see. I'll let you go first, and then I'll chime in. Yeah, the '90s. We get. Uh, it's just. It's so stocked. It's Nadine Gordimer, Derek Walcott, Tony Morrison, Kenzaburo Oa. Tony Morrison, I think, might be. If you gave a Nobel of the Nobels and just picked the the top Nobel winner, she'd be in the short list, I think. Kenzaburo Oe, Seamus Heaney, Wislawa Simborska, Dario Fo, maybe the only real uh, minor, you know, kind of weak link here. Jose mm -hmm. Saramago, Gunter Grass, and Gao Xingjian. It's, it's really eight for 10, I'd say. Maybe eight and a half for 10. It's just a really solid decade. And then you have Morrison, who is yeah. uh, sort of the queen. I wrote that this decade had the biggest combined clout. If yep. it were like a, if it was like a team sport, I think they would have like the most points. Yeah, it'd be a line. It'd be like a yeah. a murderer's row, like the Yankees. It's just uh, top to bottom. It's really solid. I think Seamus Heaney, his, his stature is only going to grow. I, I, I read a collection of his poems that was basically about soil. And yeah. I was I was riveted. It was like soil and rocks and leaves. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I think blindness is an incredible book. It's an incredible melange of oh yeah of uh, thriller and um, psych psychological portraits and yeah uh, yeah. I, I I've been recommending that actually uh, recently because. People have been a little depressed by my constant recommendations of the road. <laughs> yeah. Right. Cormac McCarthy, another guy. Yeah. You know, maybe with Philip Roth stepping aside now, Cormac McCarthy will uh, get a little more, a little more uh, momentum. You know, Philip Roth had been a runner up since 2007 mm. in, in a lot of people's minds. I mean, that's, that's yeah. kind of crazy over a decade. Yeah. And I actually, I mean, at some point we'll do a show on Philip Roth. Yeah, we should. I kind of didn't want to do one right now because my opinion of him is very mixed. And so I, I didn't think it was the right time to do a show on him, but maybe, uh, maybe in a few months we can take a look at, at Philip Roth, sort of the good, the bad, and the ugly. I think he's a very important writer to young male writers. Yeah. Yeah. Although maybe that's part of the problem. So <laughs> <laughs> anyway, let's, uh, let's hear your number two. All right. Well, you took my number two, so I, I will have to go with, uh, uh, the four, the forties. So yeah, I went with a, it's funny. I went with the twenties. I went then with the forties. So yep. we've got, uh, Herman Hesse who wrote the glass bead game. One of my favorite books, yep. mixture of philosophy and history and, uh, mentorship. And I love the fact that it's about a game that it, it, you, you never see played. It's only discussed, and on the internet, people have tried to formulate what the game, how the game would be played. Mm. 
the glass bead game. Yeah. So, uh, it's got T.S. Eliot, who I think, aside from Yeats, is is one of my favorite poets and, you know, yep. seminal works, Wasteland and Proofrock. It's got William Faulkner, who uh, is probably one of the most influential literary stylists and probably one of the first regional writers, um, kind of paved the way for a lot of, you know, Southern writing, a lot of regional writing in America. Kind of made American. I, I like to think of him as making America, writing about America, um, sophisticated in his own yeah. way. Yeah, he impressed the Europeans in a way that yeah. some of the other American writers didn't. And then it's got a couple of people I've. I confess I've never read uh, Gide and Bertrand Russell. Yeah, but who, they're they're heavyweights. I, I, I yeah, it's one of those things. Like I was telling my daughter. Uh, that you either have to read people or talk to people who've read <laughs> read other writers and yeah. know enough about know you know know them know around them. Yeah, don't you say don't you say Gide? By the way, you're the French speaker. Gide. I thought it was Andre Gide. No, oh, maybe. Okay. I would say anyway, Gide, but maybe I've maybe I've tried to. Someone <laughs> told me that you should not. Try to Frenchify when English you're talking words, English, and yeah. you should try not to pronounce words in French if you're speaking in English. Like if so, maybe that's why everyone's I've heard say guide. Yeah, I heard it. I had a friend. We used to talk about this when I was in Italy because people yeah. would correct other people's pronunciation. Like an American would come to visit and say, "Oh, I'll have some bruschetta," and someone would say, "Ah, it's bruschetta." <laughs> and uh, and then somebody said, "Yeah, I caught myself doing that a few times." And then there was there was a woman who was part of our program who was uh, she spoke Spanish, and he said, "Yeah, but it it cured me when I heard her talking about Barcelona." <laughs> <laughs> or when people say, "Like, oh, I was just in you know Praha the other day." <laughs> yeah. And I, I was like, okay, I know, I, I understand, and you know, that's the way they pronounce it. But this is this getting a little ridiculous, right? Yeah. Well, I think the '40s is a great pick, and for people who don't know, you named almost all of the the. It was the first two years, so basically, 1941 through 43, they donated the prize money to war relief right. efforts. Uh, which is a noble thing to do. I'm not going to count that against them. And then um, there were a couple of um, writers I hadn't really heard of, Johannes Jensen and Gabriella Mistral. Mm -hmm. And then they just go into this stretch. I think it might be the best five-year yeah. stretch of the entire history of the Nobels. I mean, to have Herman Hesse, André Gide, T.S. Eliot, William Faulkner, and Bertrand Russell in a row is uh, a, just a really strong five-year period. I couldn't find another other than maybe the 90s. I couldn't really find five in a row that were that uh, solid of picks, people we still read today. Yeah, I mean, we should do an episode where we pick uh, like a Finnish Nobel Prize winner and just sample their work. Yeah, yeah, that's a good idea. There is a lot of Scandinavians. Yeah, um, They're maybe a little overrepresented, but it's... That seems uh, like it would be natural for any country you yeah, know, did to you, pick things nearby. Did, you know, I read about why, because I wanted to know why Tolstoy and Chekhov and Rilke, Proust, you know, yeah. why why some of these writers had been picked. And there was an article I read that said that there's one figure, the permanent secretary of the Nobel Prize Committee until his death, Carl David Offversen, um, was a really bitter person, and mm. he, like, he didn't he didn't want to give the Nobel to Strindberg because Strindberg had satirized him in a play, mm. <laughs> and um, he 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 uh, didn't want to give it to Ibsen because he said Ibsen was past his prime and churning out plays now. Mm. <laughs> well, let me give you. I mean, the 1900s. I'll just tell you right now. I'm not going to pick it. I don't know if it's on mm -hmm. your list, but it was dead last on my list. But here's here's an alternative 1900s. Here's the ten authors that mm -hmm. they could have taken: Henry James, Chekhov, Tolstoy, 
Mark Twain, Thomas Hardy. These people were all still alive. Oscar Wilde, Joseph Conrad, William James, Sigmund Freud, Arthur Conan Doyle. That would have been a pretty good list. Yeah. Uh, that would have won. They didn't take any of those people. And then if you stretch some of these into the into the 1910s, you know, they also didn't give it to Emile Zola, Jack London, Edith Wharton, Upton Sinclair, Theodore Dreiser, Ambrose Bierce, E.M. Forster, D.H. Lawrence, Jules Verne, Bram Stoker, uh, Ford Maddox Ford, Gertrude Stein. Like they just, there are yeah. a ton of people who uh, we would think of now as the, you know, those would be the people we would pick now. And they never won a Nobel Prize. I wonder how the Nobel was received in 1901. Like, did the news come over the wire? And was there like an announcement? Like, where was it announced? Was it in like the New York Times? It would be <laughs> yeah, interesting right. to like, because without like internet or without, you know, TV, yeah. like how, well, how was this publicized? You know? Well, and, and one thing is Nobel had died five years earlier and his family uh -huh. sued because they didn't want all this money to be going away, you know, to be going out to uh, to literature, literary types and the other prize categories. So they wanted the inheritance to themselves. So uh, it took a, it took five years to work its way through the courts before they could start handing out the money. OK, so it's my pick, I think. Right. Yeah. OK, so I will take this is a little boring since I took the 90s. But <laughs> interestingly, I'm going to skip over a decade and take the 2010s, the current decade. And to take this, I had to kind of project out. I basically took an average of the picks so far and then multiplied yeah. that out by the number of years remaining. But it's a pretty solid decade. I think there might be some recency bias here because these are authors who I'm familiar with because they're current, but it's got uh, uh, Cortez is on here. Uh, Naipaul, who I'm not a huge fan of, but I sort of respect him. Mm -hmm. Harold Pinter, Orhan Pamuk, Doris Lessing, and oh, I'm sorry, I was reading the wrong. <laughs> I was yeah, reading I was the wrong decade. I was reading the 2000s. Okay, oh, okay. 2000, 2010. I like because it has Alice Munro, another queen adorning the list. It's got Ishiguru. It's got uh, Bob Dylan, who uh, I like because it it pushes some of your buttons. Um, <laughs> Patrick Modiano, who I originally had kind of ranked a little bit low, but I started reading him. He's actually uh -huh. kind of an interesting author. Tomas Transtromer is an interesting poet. Mo Yan was a deserving candidate from China. Um, Svetlana Alexievich, I haven't really read. Uh, and then Ishiguru. Yeah, you know, I, I like Ishiguru and Monroe, and I love Transtromer, who's mm -hmm. probably become... One of my go-to poets whenever I travel. I try to bring a volume of poetry whenever I travel. But um, Dylan just ruined it for <laughs> this decade. In fact, I was reading that he's in the Oxford Book of American Poetry. His poem, his poem, his um, his song "Desolation Row." Hmm. So, with uh, you know, slightly open mind, I try to read the lyrics, and I just wanted to read to everyone how bad it is. Um, let's see. Cinderella, I'm going to jump around, but I, I just want to, I'm going to make the case that it's kind of like a Cantos, Ezra Pound, Cantos wannabe. Um, it's got a bunch of references, so I'll jump around, but I'll try to keep the rhymes so people feel like they can actually hear it. But it says, Cinderella, she seems so easy. It takes one to know one. She smiles and puts her hands in her back pockets like Betty Davis style. Orphelia, she's beneath the window for her, I feel so afraid. On her second twenty on her twenty second birthday, she already is an old maid. Einstein, disguised as Robin Hood with his memories in a trunk, passed this way an hour ago with his friend, a jealous monk. The Phantom of the Opera and a perfect image of a priest, they are spoon feeding Casanova to get him to feel more assured. Praise be to Nero's Neptune, the Titanic sails at dawn. Everyone shouting, which side are you on? And Ezra Pound and T.S. Eliot fighting in the captain's tower, while Calypso singers laugh at them and fishermen hold flowers. Right now, right now, I can't read too good. Don't send me no more letters, no. 
not unless you mail them from Desolation Row. Hmm. This is clearly a piece of shit. Yeah. <laughs> you need the music. You know, there's something hypnotic, I think, about when you hear the music and then the words are coming with the music. Then yeah. it, it feels like, wow, this is so much richer than a, so many other lyrics. But we can send people back to that that episode. It's too bad that that's spoiled the whole decade for you, though. <laughs> Maybe they'll make up for it by uh, by taking uh, Murakami in one of their two picks they have next year. <laughs> uh, okay, boy. so what's your uh, number three? So I, I went with uh, the decade you started to read off. <laughs> the, the 2000s via Snipal and Kotsia yep. and Harold Pinter and Doris yeah. Lessing. Um, Pinter is is just an incredible playwright. And I think, you know, his influence on people like Sam Shepard and modern theater and language uh, is incredible. And, you know, I urge people to check out Birthday Party and Dumbwaiter. I've actually been reading that to my daughter mm. and getting a lot of laughs and getting a lot of <laughs> perplexed looks about Oh, really? Do you, you have know, to do it with uh, voices? Um, I, I try to explain to her that some people, you know, I mean, he, he hold, doesn't hold back at all. Some people are drunk. Some people are um, men, developmentally challenged, the disabled, mentally disabled. You know, it's, it, he he uh, he really tried to depict the English society he knew. Hmm. And I think there's like a lot of honesty in his humor, which is... You never feel like the humor is just there for for fireworks. Yeah. And then, you know, the via Snipal, I think, is, you know, a really uh, important writer for post-colonial mm. writers, kind of straddling different worlds and also, you know, his sensibility. I mean, he was, I think he was, he was educated in Oxford or Cambridge and, and then his, but his writing has... A lot of incredible vernacular. I, I think he's another person whose cachet will increase over time. Hmm. Interesting. I disagree. <laughs> I think uh, I think he was of his time. I think he he did open up a lot of doors and uh, maybe register with people in a way. But I find his his writing to be kind of an impenetrable thicket of prose that for me, it just feels a little lifeless. Yeah. Hard to breathe when I read Naipaul. I feel fenced in. I feel claustrophobic. Hmm. Okay. So uh, let's take a quick break and we'll be back with the rest of our draft. Okay, we're back. It's my turn. I think this is this is my number three, right? One, two, three, four, five. Yeah. yeah. My number three, I am going to take the 1980s, which was mm. a, a pretty solid decade. It's right sort of smack in the middle of my list. Uh, mm. It has one superstar, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, who's uh, up there with Toni Morrison and Alice Monroe for me as sort of 10 out of 10. Mm-hmm. It feels like the Nobel Prize, those are really worthy winners of the Nobel Prize. Someone like Gabriel Garcia Marquez. You know, he was not only innovative, but he he was popular. He was had kind of an international scope. He He just was kind of larger than life. It feels good that he won kind of this worldwide prize because of the way that his books had been so important to so many people. And, it, oh, and you have w William Golding. In that William thing. Golding is in here. Wale Soyinka, who's an, a great poet. Joseph Brodsky, who's another uh, a great poet, but also a great person to win the prize because of his life story. Yeah. Naguib Mahfouz was a really good pick. Um, was he the first Arabic? I think he might be the first Arabic 
author. Mm-hmm. Author's first language is Arabic to win. Octavio Paz, did I mention him yet? He's another great poet. So it was a good, you know, a lot of really solid people in there. And also Marquez, who's leading the way. Yeah, I, I, I had that as my next pick. So hmm. so we we're pretty, pretty much on the same page here, I think, so far. Yeah. Okay. So. so where are you? Where are you going next? I think I'm going with Bello. Just because yeah. I feel like you're you're gonna pick him. So. Yeah. They were <laughs> so the '80s. So I did this all. I did this through a point system, and the mm-hmm. '90s had 67 points. Just to give you a sense of the scale here, mm-hmm. that was my number one pick. The '80s, '20s, and '70s had 46, 45, and 44. So they were all really just a hair's breadth apart. And the '70s actually would have done better. Mm-hmm. And and I did want to take it because of Bello. But the 1974 had one of the worst picks ever where they chose mm-hmm. two Nobel winners and they were both from Sweden. And I think they had some kind of connection to the prize committee or something. It was kind of a scandal. And mm-hmm. so that one in my list, I gave them a negative one for that pick. <laughs> so even though Bello was a 10, that one kind mm-hmm. of dragged them down. Yeah, I mean, it's it was a weird decade for me because I, I've only read a couple of people there, Pablo Neruda and yep. um, Isaac Besheva Singer and Saul Bellow. I mean, I have a couple of copies of Heinrich Boll novels, but I've never read him. Mm. And um, Patrick White is somebody that I might yeah. give a try to. I know he's really... Uh really popular Australian author. He might be the first Australian to have won the Nobel Prize. I think he's the only one. I They haven't given it to Peter Carey. Hmm. The, it goes back to the whole Nobel Prize committee, the Nobel, Nobel Prize winner announcements, like whether people are going to rush out to read someone they don't know with hmm. all these things that, you know, with everything else you have to read. Yeah. You know, certainly once the year passes, I mean, people can hardly remember who won the previous year. Right. Yep. So, And uh, just to round out the 70s, you also get uh, Cecil Melos, who's uh, a great poet and also a good candidate for the Nobel Prize. He won in 1980. Oh, yeah, that's right. Okay. Good pick. So I so we've now taken my top eight. So we are kind of on the same page. I uh, just had them in slightly different order. And this, I think the one... Oh, wait. How can that be? Have we taken eight? No, no, we take it seven. You need to take your fourth. Let me see here. So we took the 90s. Uh-huh. What, are, what are the four that you've taken so far? You've taken... I took the 90s. I took... Um... No, I took the... Ni- oh, you took... Oh, sorry. No, I took the took 20s. 20s and 40s. I took the 40s. Yeah. And I took... 2000s mm-hmm. and I took the 70s. Yeah. I took the 90s and the 2010s mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. the 80s. Right. That's it. Yep. Oh, got it. Okay. So then I will take the 1950s. Mm, okay. I had two decades left that are sort of worthy. One is the 1950s. Ernest Hemingway finally got it. Um, it probably killed him to get it after Faulkner. That five years he had to wait was probably a, a killer for him. Boris Pasternak won, although he declined the prize. I guess maybe that was not his totally his choice. Camus is in here. Haldor Laxness, who a lot of people make fun of. I think when Bella won his prize. Somebody who was jealous said to him, oh, now you join the ranks of luminaries like Haldor Laxness as a way of, uh, yeah, as a way of, uh, you know, sort of denigrating the prize, which is, was probably not fair. Haldor Haldor Laxness, who's Icelandic, is uh, not a bad writer. Winston Churchill won, which is interesting. I mean, he was a, a great writer, but I think they particularly called out his speeches as they awarded it to him and i guess that's pretty much it we're kind of getting to the the decades now where if it has two or three good writers that's enough to for me to select it that's kind of where we're the others i i don't think too much of maybe you know maybe this is a moment to pause and just 
give a, the Nobel Prize Committee a little credit mm. for having had some pretty good decades. Yeah. Because hindsight being 2020, you know, I, I think back to some of the books I loved and I don't know. I mean, it's, uh, I mean, I, I, I thought that Jay Mc, McInerney would become one of the greatest <laughs> American writers. So, and I think that, yeah. that, that ship has sailed. I mean, that's not happening. But you know, you know, it's like the, I mean, if you lined up all of the best pictures, yeah, for the Academy Awards, there are some real duds in there. Right. And but if you lined up all of the Lifetime Achievement Awards, mm -hmm. you'd they'd probably all be really solid picks and recognizable figures, right? It's I mean the the Nobel has transformed into sort of a Lifetime Achievement Award. There's no way Jay McInerney was going to win after Bright Lights Big City. <laughs> Is it your pick now? Yeah, so Last I pick. since you yeah, since you took the the 50s, I'll take the 60s. Yep, that's uh, the next one. That's the last good decade on my list. <laughs> <laughs> so you've got Steinbeck and Sartre and Beckett and so on, and yep. Nietzsche and the Hungarian Ivo Andrik. I've never read his novel about the bridge, but I, I do own it. And, yeah, I mean, uh, it's, Kawabata, Japanese writer yeah i mean the the i think these writers have found a place beckett is probably one of the most studied writers in academia i feel like you know a friend mm -hmm. of mine was telling me there's so many papers about beckett yeah. maybe sartre is the only one who's kind of faded a little bit with the rise of theory and the movement away from that kind of philosophy yeah existential philosophy but who knows maybe we're going back to it yeah and he's such a cultural figure and such a it's it's too bad that de beauvoir didn't win yeah okay so i will take my last pick and again it, this does kind of emphasize what you were just saying about how the prize committee did pretty well getting it right sometimes because we ranked the 1920s really high mm -hmm. and you would think that you know everything we chose would be very recent, but they got it right in the 20s. They got it right in the 40s. And you can see from the 30s how difficult it is to get it right because a lot of these people are just people who have really fallen out of favor or who have just faded away. Pearl Buck is somebody who's not very well respected anymore. Mm. Gallsworthy, I don't think is... Uh, I know there's been sort of a revival of him, but he's not someone you would consider up there with uh, Ford Maddox Ford or Conrad or even H.G. Wells. And then there's a few Swedes, Carl Felt, <laughs> some people I've never heard of. Uh, <laughs> oh, Ivan Boonin is uh, was kind of an interesting pick. Pirandello is worthy. Eugene O'Neill has kind of fallen out of favor, although I can understand why he won, I guess. But, you know, you could see, uh, and then Franz Emile Silanpa and Roger Martin Dugard. Like, these are just people who uh, I can't imagine picking up one of their books, and yet they were Nobel Prize winners. So it's hard to find people who are going to last, I guess. You know what would be interesting is to... Um do a show on best-selling writers per, per year. I mean, literary writers, you yeah. know, literary books. Yep. Any kind of publicity to encourage readers uh, reading is, is great. And if, if this is one more sticker that can be plastered over a book to try to get people to, to buy the book, then, you know, go for it. Yeah. And it's, you know, you could really see that. I mean, we saw that with your reaction to Dylan winning the Nobel. Mm -hmm. I thought one of the one of the strongest points that people made when they argued against it is he already gets fame and accolades and he can win Grammys and he can uh, be world famous and wealthy. And there's all of these different ways that a songwriter can be rewarded. But, yeah. you know, for some poet or some playwright who's selling 4,000 copies in 10 years. Uh, the Nobel Prize for Literature is, it's nice that we have this very prestigious thing with this substantial prize money and that it goes out to somebody who has spent their life toiling away 
uh, just yeah. with a, a pen and paper. Who would you give the Nobel Prize to in order to get people to read that writer next year? I mean, I, I would I would definitely give it to Marius. I mean, because I feel like, you know, if we're if if the criteria, if the sole criteria right. is to try to get more readers, I mean, Murakami doesn't need any he more readers. He doesn't need it. Yeah. Yeah. He's he's doing fine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, that's a good pick, Marius. Or I would say, like, give it to Ben Marcus. I mean, I I feel like, hmm. you know, he's doing some interesting stuff. I mean, he, he's not, you know, my favorite. Uh, he's not someone I always reach for, but sometimes I'm in the mood for Ben Marcus. Yeah, the uh, the people who, and this is why it, it, I never really shed a tear that Philip Roth didn't win. <laughs> you know, there are some authors, Franzen's another one in this category, that people feel sort of obligated to read now. Like, uh-huh. oh, I guess I should read this because Updike was like this. You know, oh, I guess this is a famous writer and this is a... Uh, an important writer and a, a mm-hmm. uh, uh, what's the right word? You know, sort of a, this will be good for me to read this. And yeah. if somebody has that reputation, they don't really need the Nobel Prize to get people to read them more. They're already right. getting that kind of an audience. But uh, someone like, I don't know, does Elena Ferrante, is she well known enough now that she doesn't need more readers? She's someone I, I would like to see win. Yeah. Or your guy, Nausgaard. Well, he's definitely going to win it. Yeah, I would think he'll win. Yeah, I, I'm actually, I'm, I'm, I'm really enjoying his uh, letters, his little essays to his unborn daughter. Hmm. Um, if people haven't read that, it's named after the four seasons. I'm, I'm reading Winter now, but I read Autumn. I read Winter. I actually photocopied an essay on an otter. I was going to send you, Jack. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> It's about an otter. <laughs> I don't think I don't know if anyone's written four pages on an otter before, but it's a beautiful piece. Um, but yeah, I, I think he's going to win it at some point. I like the I like the travel writing he does, where he, uh, he oh writes, yeah, that's he a writes great about piece. you know being Wait, in didn't... a what is it being in a hotel room and his iron yeah. tra- his his hotel room's iron doesn't work or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the time. Are you talking about the Times? Yeah, hired him to write about uh, America, traveling through America, and he basically, and they sent a photographer, and he turned to the photographer day one and said, "I don't want to do this, and I'm not going to talk to you." <laughs> the photographer said, uh, "Okay," <laughs> and so the whole piece was basically about how a, a, a project, an assignment like this, sucks. And it was it was very entertaining. It's it's uh, I really I think that's the first piece that I read from him that I really loved. Okay, well maybe that's what I should. I'm looking for some books to take to Italy on my trip that's coming up here. So I was thinking of taking Byron, but maybe uh, maybe I should take some uh, Nausgaard instead. Byron's overrated. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, I, I've actually been, it's funny, you, you're reading Byron. I, I've, I've actually been reading Mary Shelley's biography by Muriel Spark. Oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, Mary Shelley is awesome. I think Shelley, well, Keats, Keats is, is awfully yeah. good. But I think if I were going to take a uh, a poet, a romantic poet with me, it probably would be uh, Shelley, actually. But yeah, I recommend volume one of My Struggle by mm. Nausgaard. I think that's, uh, people who haven't read the whole thing love that first book. Yeah, so here, we had talked about this before, I think. My problem was I couldn't get through the first 20 or 30 pages, and then I heard mm-hmm. that he had said, other than the first 20 or 30 pages, that's the only thing that was up to my literary standard. And then <laughs> I've, I've heard it changes quite a bit after that. And he, that was where yeah. he carefully wrote it and revised it and made it very literary. And I think that was the style I didn't like. It sounds like I will like the rest of the yeah. book more where it gets into more of the diary aspect of it. I mean, he, I, I, I can't describe how great it is sinking into his world. The, one of the books is about, he, he got an MFA in fiction. Norway is a tiny country. There, there's only like one or two MFA programs. And his MFA program was taught by three of the five 
greatest Norwegian living writers. Mm. Right. <laughs> so just just imagine your MFA program. Just <laughs> like if it was like you know Sal Bellow, Philip Roth, and Alice Munro teaching you a class. <laughs> I mean, so he's in awe, but at the same time, he's just like, you, you know, you're human beings. Like I, you know, why are you why are you speaking for the mountain? Yeah. And he. It's a great that I forget which book that is. I think it's book four. He um, sizes up all his classmates because he's he's in you know he he admits he's insecure and he's competitive and and he gets it all wrong. <laughs> like everyone he thought was like you know an imposter is like really good and writing from the heart. And um, the only thing he gets right is he befriends. He decides this person is going to be my best friend. And she turns out to be an incredibly helpful critic mm. of his writing. And that's like the only thing he got right is choosing this friend. Mm. <laughs> well, maybe you're kind of enticing me now. Maybe I should, maybe that's what I should take. Yeah. Book four is about writing. Book three is in Norway. Again, it's a tiny country. So anyone who graduates the South is the intelligentsia and the North is the wild backwater. Mm -hmm. So anyone who graduates from a high school in the South can get a job teaching in high school in the, in the North. So when you, you can imagine this, he's 19 years old and he's teaching um, juniors mm. in the North, <laughs> kind of falling in love with some of the girls. Right. Because he's 19. Yeah. And sort of being physically threatened by some of the guys. And it's a hilarious year that he spends teaching. Hmm. And the principal accuses him of being like a soft southerner and it's hilarious. Yeah, that's book three. Book two is about his um the way he kind of got out of his marriage and shacked up with this poet and who eventually he married. Hmm. And it's it's a little hard to read, I think. Uh Book two, I mean, I don't want to reveal too much, but his his ex-wife actually learned all these details by reading book two herself, mm. which is always, you know, it, 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 I mean, I think it just sounds terrible. I mean, I, I think there's no other way to say it, you know, that you have to like reveal those kind of details. Yeah. 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 yeah Raymond Carver did it in a short story and uh, Jay McInerney said to him, you know which one I'm talking about, right? And Jay McInerney said to him, Ray, how could you do it? How could you do that to, what was her name, Marianne? How could you do mm -hmm. that to her? And Carver said, oh, it's fiction. But And then McInerney felt bad that he had blurted that out. But it mm -hmm. seemed uh, too close to the bone and, and maybe designed to hurt or, or burn a bridge or it just seemed too raw and painful. Yeah, it's tough to read if you've ever, you know, had a friend go through that kind of when their marriage falls apart. I mean, it's one thing to read. I, 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 I wonder how teenagers read it, because I think you can read it as like this, like exciting new time. But if you're a middle aged and thinking about marriages falling apart, mm. it's, it's sad to have to reveal yeah. that kind of stuff. And then there's just this this built in uh superiority or the the person who's writing has such a privileged position you yeah. know because they're the ones who are telling the story and so yeah. unless they're completely self-deprecating and willing to defer it just it can come across as mean-spirited or or unfair and you find yourself kind of aligned with the person who is not there to have their story told yeah, I mean, she was his first wife was a journalist, so she actually ended up writing a small piece afterward. But it was, mm -hmm. it's you know, it, it's a drop in the bucket compared yeah. to yeah. his readership. So, ah, uh, okay. So, are we ending on another gloomy note? Is that? Uh... Well, no, they're going to give it to him. They they should give him the Nobel Prize next okay. year. So we'll have <laughs> prophesied that and given the readers a lot Ooh. of. Oh you know, yeah! If it's a so. Murakami Nausgaard double victory. <laughs> we may right. have to uh well we'll go to sweden and we'll do the podcast live from the ceremony how about that you know it's funny you mentioned that because i am going to sweden <laughs> this summer 
we're going to <laughs> Stockholm. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> Is that for a, a violin performance or something? No, we're just we're going to London and then we're going to hop over to Stockholm. Our friends just visited Stockholm and we're recommending uh, the city. And I, I have an old friend who who worked there for a couple of years and used to tell me about how he'd ice skate to work. Mm, it was perfect. <laughs> and then you're you're going to take uh, Transtromer in your bag. Oh yeah, definitely. I was I was gonna read some more Strindberg also. I I I've read my first Strindberg a couple of years ago. So okay, sounds good. Well, let's leave things there, Mike. As always, thanks for joining me on today's History of Literature podcast. Thanks, Jack. Okay, there we go. That was fun. My thanks, as always, to Mike, who took time away from his duties as club president to join me. You can find more History of Literature at historyofliterature.com or on Twitter at TheJackWilson. That's J-A-C-K-E, Wilson. Support the show at patreon.com slash literature. And when the last ding-dong of doom is clanged and faded from the last worthless rock hanging tideless in the last red and dying evening, that even then there will be still one more sound, that of my podcaster voice, this puny, inexhaustible voice, still talking. Except for today. Today I'm going to take a break and probably go eat some nachos. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.